Imagine a film producer who took a large gamble on creating the first superhero film. A large part of the film's success was the man who was hired to direct. The man had already shot 75% of its sequel. What does the producer do? Allow the successful director to finish the second film? Or fire him and replace him with a director who prefers slapstick comedy? Today I have the story of the fall of the Superman franchise on the 181st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee. I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. So, how's the weather by you? For us in the Midwest, it's, well, rain, rain, and more rain. It never stops. I don't know if a day's gone by the spring where we haven't been hit by rain. And it wouldn't be so bad except the fact that I've got to constantly cut our grass. So today I'm doing part two of the Superman story. I toyed with the idea of doing a third part, the story of the creators of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, but I think that'll wait for a future episode. But before I start, I want to recommend a film. I found it on Amazon Prime, and it's called Cosmic Blast. It's a film by a bunch of Wisconsin filmmakers who call themselves Moron Productions. This film was made with a budget of about $700, and every dollar is there on the screen. Seriously, it's the lowest of low-budget films, and it's remarkable. I loved it. These filmmakers don't try to hide their low-budgetness. They embrace it. It's everything you expect out of a $700 film, but it's fantastic. I don't know anything about these filmmakers, but I've I've thought about getting in touch with them to see if uh, their story might make for a good Coffee with Jeff episode, but I don't know. So now, why don't you pour yourself a nice cup of black coffee as I tell you about the Superman film franchise from 1978 to 1987 in what might be called How to Kill a Successful Franchise in Four Easy Steps. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Superman 2. The adventure continues with the three villains from Krypton. Each one with the same powers as Superman. Three super villains. Or four if you count them twice. If you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. The adventure continues in Superman 2. When we finished up a couple weeks ago, a decision had been made to scrap the idea of filming both Superman the movie and its sequel at the same time. Filming had gone on way too long and at a great cost, so it was time to finish the first film and worry about the second film later. By this point, much of the second film had been shot, 
but to complete the first, some of the footage for the second film had to be used to complete the first, including what was supposed to be the end of Superman 2. The original ending of the first movie was supposed to have Superman throwing the missiles released by Lex Luthor into space. One of the missiles hits the floating Phantasm Zone triangle thing that General Zod and his gang are imprisoned in, freeing them. The last shot was supposed to be the three rogues heading to Earth. So in October 1978, after 19 months of principal photography, shooting finally ended. Well, it ended for everybody except Christopher Reeves, who had spent months and months working on the flying effects. Richard Donner and Stuart Bard began the long job of trying to put all the footage into a complete, cohesive film, and it wasn't an easy job to take the ending of one film and use it in another. It took a lot of creative editing to make it work. Warner Brothers was originally hoping for a June 1978 release to coincide with the 40th anniversary of Action Comics 1, the comic book in which Superman first appeared. This date was found, with the amount of effects and such that still had to be completed, to be unrealistic. In fact, filming all these special effects wasn't even completed till October of 1978. So when the new release date of December was announced, it gave Donner and his team just two months to put it all together. Editor Stuart Bard later reflected, Filming was finished in October 1978, and it was a miracle we had the film released two months later. Big budget films today tend to take six to eight months. Donner said later that he wished he had another six months. I would have perfected a lot of things, but at some point you gotta turn the picture over. Now the music for this film is an interesting story. Richard Donner's first choice was Jerry Goldsmith, who had won an Academy Award for Donner's previous film, The Omen. Unfortunately, although Goldsmith had very much wanted to do the film, he was unavailable. So next, Donner called John Williams, who instantly agreed to do the score. But because filming took a lot longer than expected, Williams had to drop out. Now with the planned summer release, Goldsmith became available. Donner thought, great, maybe this was the way it was supposed to be. But when the release date was moved to Christmas, now Goldsmith was busy and Williams wasn't. So Williams was back in, and what a wonderful score John Williams created. Now because of the quick turnaround, the usual preview test showings wasn't going to be possible. Donner, however, really wanted to show a rough cut to audiences to see if he was close to where he should be. So he arranged a U.S. showing of the film. He was shocked when Warner Brothers called and said there was a problem. The Salkinds wouldn't release the print. They refused to send it to the United States. Apparently, the Salkinds were afraid that Donner would make prints of the film using the rough cut. This confused Donner as it was the negative that was needed to make prints. But the Salkinds wouldn't budge. Donner was furious and he said, I was fit to be tied. So he ended up going back to England and finishing the picture without any kind of test screening. Warner Brothers spent $7 million to market and promote the film. The U.S. premiere of the film was in the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. on December 10, 1978, and was attended by President Jimmy Carter. Also there for the showing was writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joel Schulster, the creators of Superman. According to Donner, both came to him after the show and thanked him profusely, crying as they talked. By the way, the tale of Siegel and Schuster is a good story on its own, and, and maybe we'll get to that in a later episode. Anyway, Donner was asked to follow them into a room. Inside, he found a bunch of Warner Brothers executives, standing near the original bronze statue of Superman created in 1930. 
It was presented as a gift to Donner. He said, It was the most moving moment I think I've ever had in this business or will ever have. Then he added, Except when my wife said she would marry me. The film, of course, became a huge box office hit, one of the biggest ever. The film set an all-time U.S. industry record for business during a pre-Christmas week with $12,044,000 and set new records for Warner Brothers for their best opening day and three-day weekend. In the week of December 22nd to December 28th, it set an all-time U.S. weekly record of over $18,500,000. It went on to gross $134.21 million in North America and $166 million internationally, totaling $300.21 million worldwide. Now remember, these were 1970s dollars, and it was huge for a film back then. Superman was the second highest grossing film of 1978 behind only Greece, and became the sixth largest grossing film of all time after its theatrical run. It was also Warner Brothers' most successful film at the time. Margaret Kidder, who played Lois Lane, said she was shell-shocked by the film's massive success. She said, I was not in any way prepared for being in a global hit. It was a real shock to go from being anonymous to suddenly being recognized everywhere you go. It was really a rude awakening. She went on to say that she didn't handle it really well, and it went to her head. For Donner, he said, I was very, very, very proud of the picture and not in its size or the fact that it was number one for Warner Brothers or any of that stuff, but that we pulled it off. That an audience sat in the theater and got the same charge that I did when I sat in the dailies and saw Christopher Reeve fly from one end of the screen to the other. This was a great victory for Richard Donner, and he and Tom Mankiewicz began working on ideas to finish Superman 2, with almost 75 of the film already completed. What they really needed was a new ending. But trouble began when Amy Archer, the columnist for Variety magazine, in her column quoted Donner as saying that if Pierre Spangler, the producer of Superman, was involved in Superman 2, he wouldn't be. Whether Donner said this or not, he was still planning, with excitement, on finishing the second film. But Spangler got together with the Salkinds and a decision was reached. Donner was sitting at home one day when a telegram arrived. It was from the Salkines, and it said, Your service will no longer be needed. It turned out that Richard Lester was taking over director's duties for Superman 2. To this day, Donner said, he has never heard personally from Richard Lester. Donner was really pissed off because he was ready to go back, and not for the money because he had already been paid. In fact, he said he was even ready to do Superman 3 or 4 if the franchise continued. After he got the telegram, he said he was ready to get on an airplane and kill because they were taking his baby away from him. Writer Tom Mankiewicz was offered to keep on with the project, but said, no thanks, in respect to his friend Donner. Gene Hackman also refused to come back without Donner. So all the additional scenes with Lex Luthor were filmed with a double. 30 years later, Margaret Kidder said, So they fired Donner, which was just such a horrible thing to do. Even now, 30 years later, I find it shocking. Now, the biggest problem with Lester taking over Superman 2 was that for him to get credit for directing the film, he would have to shoot at least 51% of the final film. 75% of the film had already been done, so quickly, new scenes between Superman and Lois Lane were written so they could get rid of enough Donner-directed scenes for Lester to get credit. 
For many of the scenes already shot by Donner that had to be used, Lester shot additional footage to insert within. Mark McClure, who played Jimmy Olsen, who compared the family-like atmosphere of the first film to the second, said, Richard Lester came in and there was nothing close to a family atmosphere. It seemed no one in the cast was happy. From what I understand, the collaboration between cast and director to figure scenes out and to find out what worked and what didn't, the thing that had worked so well with Richard Donner, wasn't something Richard Lester was interested in. It was more like Lester telling people where to stand and have them say their lines and then move on. Terrence Stamp, who played General Zod, said he thought Lester had a shot list of essential shots that were needed to get the film done and was getting them as quickly as possible. It seemed Lester was hired because he was an economical director who always completed his work on time. Another decision for Superman 2 was not to use the scenes they had shot with Marlon Brando, due to the fact that Brando was very expensive, and instead replace his scenes with Susan York, Superman's mother from the first film. Now they wouldn't have to give Brando his 11% of the gross. And for the difference in style, Lester summed it up well. He said, I think that Donner had emphasized a kind of grandiose myth. There was a kind of David Leanish attempt in several sequences on enormous scale. There was a type of epic quality that wasn't in my nature. So my work really didn't embrace that. That's not me. That's his vision of it. I'm more quirky and I play around with slightly more unexpected silliness. That was it. Lester enjoyed the silly, campy jokes, the very thing Donner had disliked in the original Puzo script. On a personal note, I get the impression that Donner really had a love for Superman, while Lester didn't. It was just a job to him, and he wanted to make a very light, entertaining film. Another thing that was different was there was product placement on Superman 2. Lois Lane, who never smoked in the comic books, was shown as a chain smoker in this film. This apparently was because the Philip Morris Company had paid $40,000 for their Marlboro cigarettes to appear in the film. Now, to give Richard Lester credit, he was brought into a difficult situation, trying to mix his style of filmmaking into a film that had already been shot by another director in a completely different style, and to work with actors who were upset at him being there in the first place. He also had to work without some of the key artistic visionaries from the first film, Writer Tom Mankiewicz and editor Stuart Bard refused to come back, and cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth had died. In addition, Lester and composer John Williams didn't get along, so Ken Thorne was brought in to do the score. Yet through all this, Lester created a very successful film. In fact, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave it four out of four stars, and it did very well at the box office. At the time, many critics called it better than the original, an opinion I don't believe stood the test of time. And because of its success, Richard Lester got the job of doing Superman 3. Superman 3 went through a lot of story ideas, even bringing in Supergirl and Brainiac. But, in my opinion, it all began going wrong when Richard Pryor made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. On his appearance, he talked about how much he enjoyed Superman 2 and would like to be in a Superman movie sometime in the future. The Salkines heard of this and were eager to cast him in a prominent role in the new film. So now if you add Richard Pryor to a Richard Lester-directed film, you must assume that the film is going to be very comic and campy. Again, Gene Hackman wanted nothing to do with the film, but Margaret Kidder was another story. 
she had publicly criticized the Salkines for their treatment of Donner. She was given to what amounted to be a cameo in the new film. She literally goes on vacation at the start of the film. The Salkines denied that this had anything to do with what Kidder said, saying her involvement was cut down for story reasons. Ilya Salkine said that she was under no obligation to even be in the film. They just decided to give Clark Kent a new love interest, and that was played by Onetto Toole as Lana Lang. Lester was finally able to do lots and lots of silly jokes that seemed to be, well, out of place in a Superman film. Now, to be honest, I haven't seen this film in years, and I didn't watch it for this episode, but I seem to remember it opening with like five minutes of slapstick jokes. The film was about Richard Pryor as Gus Gorman, who goes from taking a basic entry-level computer course to becoming a computer super genius who creates artificial intelligence. Yes, a sentient computer. Remember, this is back in the days where a lot of people thought computers were mysterious and scary. Now, the thing about Pryor in this film is, I believe, Lester made the mistake that a lot of filmmakers do when they have a stand-up comedian in their film. They just put them in front of the camera and say, be funny. Just see Richard Pryor's not-so-funny George S. Patton scene in Smallville. On the bright side, Reeves is wonderful. He gives it his all and does a great job of being the evil Superman. But even that's full of childish gags like when he straightens out the Leaning Tower of Pisa or blows out the Olympic torch. In his autobiography, Richard Pryor admitted that he thought the screenplay was terrible and he only accepted the role because of the $5 million salary. I can understand that. Superman 3 got poor reviews from the critics and didn't do well at the box office. So the Salkines decided to take the franchise in another direction. They began working on another character they bought at the same time they purchased Superman, and that was his cousin, Supergirl. With a cast of Faye Dunaway, Peter Cook, Mia Farrow, Mark McClure, Brenda Vaccaro, Peter O'Toole, and Helen Slater as Supergirl, how could they go wrong? But everything's wrong in this film. The plot is just mindless. Kara Zor-El is from Argo City, in which Peter O'Toole screws things up with something he calls the Omega Hedron. Kara Zor-El is forced to attempt to recover this thing, which wound up on Earth. On Earth, she becomes, of course, Supergirl. But here's the thing. She's given a limited amount of time to get back to her home world to save everybody, including her mother, who was played by Mia Farrow. If she doesn't return to save them, they're going to run out of air and stuff, because apparently they need this thing to make air, I don't know. But once on Earth, and after almost getting raped, she spends her time going to a girl's school as Linda Lee. She seems in no hurry whatsoever to get back to her home planet to save everybody. In fact, she never goes back to her home world, even at the end of the film. So I guess as an audience, we just have to assume that her parents and everybody on the planet had died. Maybe this has something to do with the almost hour of footage that was cut from the original edit. Oh, and Christopher Reeves was supposed to have a cameo in the film, but I can only assume after he read the script, he was like, I don't think so. Mark McClure reprises his role as Jimmy Olsen, who hangs around the girls' school. So, I mean, what could be creepy about a 27-year-old man hanging around a girls' high school, right? Anyway, Supergirl was a huge failure, and the Salkines decided they were done with the franchise. The public, in their opinion, had enough of Superman— but there were a couple of men who thought otherwise, and that was the team of Menheim Golan and Yoram Globus. 
They were the men who were behind Canon Films. Canon Films were known for making low-budget action films, so they were probably the wrong guys to produce a Superman film. They were able to get most of the original cast back for Superman for The Quest for Peace. That included Christopher Reeves, Jackie Cooper, Margaret Kidder, and even Gene Hackman. Reeves, who previously said he would never be in another Superman movie after Superman 3, came back because of an agreement for Cannon to produce his passion project, a film called Street Smart, and he was given a chance to co-write the film. In fact, I read that the only reason they got everybody else back was because of Christopher Reeve. Now, allegedly, both Richard Donner and Richard Lester were offered the director's chair, but both turned it down. The biggest problem with the production was that Canon Films had, like, 30 films in production, including He-Man, Masters of the Universe, and they were having financial problems, so the budget for Superman 4 was cut from $36 million, which was low to begin with, to $17 million. This forced the filmmakers to cut corners wherever they could. John Cryer, who played Lex Luthor's sidekick in place of Ned Beatty, said that the film just ran out of money and was released unfinished. He said at the premiere, Reeves took him aside and said the movie was going to be terrible. Can you imagine that? The disappointment of a young actor who gets told by the film's biggest star that the project he had been working on for months was going to suck? Reeves regretted his decision to work on the film, saying, Superman 4 was a catastrophe from start to finish. The failure was a huge blow to my career. The Washington Post said of the film that it was more sluggish than a funeral barge, cheaper than a sale at Kmart, it's nerdy, it's a shame, it's Superman 4. The film was such a failure that a planned fifth Superman movie was soon cancelled, and although Warner Brothers owned DC Comics, they wouldn't bother with the character of Superman for another 19 years. A countdown has begun. Can we risk not launch? The world is on the brink. And only one man can save us now. What a scoop! Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway, and Margot Kidder. Clark? Clark, things aren't that bad! Clark, stop! As Lois Lane. Superman 4, his greatest adventure, the quest for peace. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So, a little bit before I go. You hear interviews with people like the Salkinds in Golden Globus, and they say that Superman had run its course, that people didn't want to see any more Superman films. I think they were totally wrong. The franchise could have continued, probably for at least five or six films, if they if they just made good movies, which they didn't. They struck lightning in a bottle with the first film, having the right cast and crew, with people who were determined to make a quality film that was respectful to the character of Superman. By Superman 4, the film going public wasn't tired of Superman, they were tired of bad writing and directing. Maybe the Marvel Universe is so successful because they learned something from the decline of the Superman films. Who knows? In 2006, the Cape superhero finally returned in Brian Singer's Superman Returns. Although I didn't think it was a good film, Singer did a good job of trying to continue on the original franchise. 
I have to admit, I haven't seen any of the new DC Universe films like Superman vs. Batman or any of those. But you know, I'm good. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, we at SciCon don't have producers to feed us money to make our shows. We do that out of our own pocket. But we could use your help. You can be one of the good people and support us by visiting SciCon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, we thank everybody who already supports the show. And speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find many amazing podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a couple of stars or a review. Those really help. And remember, links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Ricker for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You people have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with something new.
Coffee.